Richard Radio begins in three, two, one. You are God's little G. You are God's because you came from God. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. God came from heaven, became a man, made man into little gods. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to know God, but that does not mean we are God. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God, and he will not share his glory with another. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. What should be the evangelical attitude toward Israel? This is Wretched Radio, and that, of course, is the Israeli National Anthem. You probably never heard a National Anthem sound so mournful. Normally, National Anthem's triumphant, militaristic, bellicose, joyful. Not so in Israel. Their National Anthem, more doleful. Why? Well, they've had plenty of reason to mourn over the centuries, And a reason, not the least of which, would be proper grounds for being a little bit lamentful, would be because of the religion of peace, or so we're told by politicians who apparently have never opened up a history book to discover that Islam is a bloodstained religion, not because they've been martyred, but because they were the martyrs, and it is their eschatological plan to take over the world. Starting with Jerusalem, no doubt you heard Hamas, well-funded thanks to Iran and some really bad political decisions. Elections have consequences, don't you know? They attacked Israel unprovoked, unannounced. Benjamin Netanyahu claiming Israel is now at war. And there seems to be a little bit of a war inside of evangelical Christianity about our attitude toward Israel. Should we be sad about this? Do we even care about Israel? Might I take us on a bit of a history tour to try to understand why it is some evangelicals, they are indeed interested and sad about the events in Israel, why others are like, well, yeah, it's a tragedy, but it doesn't have any eschatological implications. That's really the issue. That's the distinguishing theology between those who have a keen interest in Israel and those who don't. Please note, both parties, we're we're talking about genuine believers here, and this is not a treatise on predispensational eschatology, although happy to deliver that, not, not, not looking to pick an eschatological fight, looking to study our attitude toward Israel. And there is a theology that will help us do that perhaps more than any other. And, and that is an understanding of, well, same word, once negated, supersessionism. Has the church superseded? Has the church replaced Israel? Or is God dealing with the world in different, I'll say it, dispensations? And that doesn't mean you have to bind a dispensationalism whole cloth but that he's been dealing with the world in different eras, and he's not done with Israel for many reasons. Supersessionism versus 
non-supersessionism. If you are not familiar with the terms, here is a little bit of a cursor. My thanks to one Tom Hammond for assembling this. Supersessionism holds that national ethnic Israel has either forfeited or completed her status and role as the chosen people of God. We are, not them. Therefore, national ethnic Israel will never again play a unique part in God's prophetic plans apart from those of the church. Now, please note, as we are going to hear, there are degrees of supersessionists. Uh, there, there isn't total harmony on these issues, which should be pretty obvious. I'll state it nevertheless. Should promote a little bit of eschatological humility. I'm, I'm persuaded of my position. But people who are not idiots have different takes on, on some of these eschatological issues. Simply trying to describe the two general camps, and then we'll take a historical look to see what have people who have been both post-mill, pre-trib, amillennial said about the nation of Israel and its promises. Supersessionism holds the church is now the true spiritual Israel. The church has permanently replaced or superseded national ethic ethnic Israel as the people of God. Israel, the church, now synonyms, according to the secessionist view. And all fulfilled, old, unfulfilled Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the church. And I think that that's the area that I would point your attention to. Old Testament prophecies toward Israel. It sure seems that Old Testament people understood God's promises to them. Jewish people living in a Jewish zip code. Supersessionism would say, yeah, but now those things are actually fulfilled in the church. And so you have to make the case biblically that somehow, and, and supersessionists do, and please note, if, if you're a supersessionist, Brother, sister, we disagree, but we're we're not enemies. We're we're trying to sort through a complicated subject. You've got to make the case that somehow God kind of transferred those promises to the church. Would seem to require something rather explicit. Nevertheless, here's the non-supersessionist position. National ethnic ethnic Israel has not permanently forfeited her unique status as the people of God. It still has a unique role in God's prophetic plans. That means Israel and the church, they're separate entities. For me, the biggest issue in this, because I get it, I, I see the supersessionist arguments. I, I get it. I see it. It's fidelity in our hermeneutic, how we read the Bible. Uh, are, are we going to do it spiritually? Are we going to do it allegorically? Or are we going to consistently practice a grammatical, historical hermeneutic? Because for my money, when you do, um, non-supersessionism is the only view that makes sense, to me at least. Finally, non-supersessionism holds that national ethnic believing Israel will one day be both saved and restored it doesn't mean every Jewish person will be saved. A national ethnic Israel will be replanted as a literal kingdom in the land that was promised to her specifically. Now, please note again, there are varying shades 
of supersessionists, punitive, economic, structural. There's variance. And some might find themselves in one, two, or all three of those camps. All three types of supersessionism can take one of two positions. Either Israel, done. It's the church, a much stronger ethnic nation, no future, no salvation, no restoration. And then you've got moderate supersessionism, which basically states, no, there's still some promises for Israel. And that is where we take a look at a list assembled by Phil Layton, noted theologians in history who believed in a future conversion of national ethnic Israel. This is not to settle a debate on eschatology, but this is to encourage us to watch the news and realize there's something bigger going on than just war. There is a plan for Israel. Ian Murray, he says, from the first quarter of the 17th century, belief in a future conversion of the Jews became commonplace among the English Puritans. William Perkins, he was a Puritan writer, he wrote a lot, claiming there's still a plan. Now, again, please note, because there are some supersessionists who would cite these guys to say, see, they, they, they believed in a form of supersessionism. I get that. But the case that I'm trying to make is that they still believe there's a future for Israel, whether it's ethnic, whether it's the ground, whether it's the people. This, there's a, there's a plan, and that's been understood. Dutch Reformed theologians in the 17th century believed in a future salvation of the Jews. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite Puritans, I believe that the literal sense of the Old Testament prophecies has been far too much neglected by the churches and is far too much neglected at the present day, and that under the mistaken system of spiritualizing and accommodating biblical language, Christians have too often completely missed its meaning. Jonathan Edwards believed in a plan for Israel. One Charles Haddon Spurgeon believed in a plan for Israel. John Calvin, I get it, you can use him for other means, but he did believe that there was a future for Israel. Charles Hodge, John Murray, the Reformation Study Bible, R.C. Sproul, Geneva Study Bible, Matthew Henry, John Gill, John Newton, Mr. Amazing Grace, the larger Westminster Confession, John Owen, Cotton Mather, Robert Murray, McShane, Richard Sibbs, Puritan, Increase Mather, Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, Puritan, Thomas Boston. The conclusion of the matter, these quotes from non-dispensational writers should be more than sufficient to show that a future salvation for ethnic or national Israel was not invented by 19th century dispensationalism. And so it is. The evangelical attitude toward Israel, while we can certainly quibble over some of the finer points, our hearts should be broken for the nation and the people of Israel. This is Wretched Radio. 
sorry to ask you to do some math, but this is math that is going to make you very, very happy. Listen to this one testimony of a woman who chose life. When I found out I was pregnant, I felt like I was being pushed to get an abortion. My papa's exact words to me were, this isn't a birthing center, find somewhere else to go. And I came in and I met Melody and it was this instant connection and I told her what I was going through and it was kind of like having an instant friend and instant family. Take that one testimony and multiply it times 54,253 and what do you get? The number of babies that were saved because you have been supporting pre-born centers around the country. Would you please consider helping us grow that number by providing ultrasounds? $28 per ultrasound, 80% of the time saves a life at preborn.org slash wretched. Hey, hey, well, October is here. That means pumpkin spice everything everywhere you look. <laughs> Plus, that also means football season is in full swing. Oh, and of course, the Devil's Day is coming up. That's right, Halloween is coming up. And I don't have to tell you that Sugar Hype Kids are going to be coming knocking on your door, whether you like it or not, so you better be prepared. We've got a way to help you send them soaring higher than any cavity-induced candy you could ever give them. I'm talking about giving them gospel booklets from Wretched. You can give them the treat of all treats this Halloween, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't have to skip the candy if you don't want to. No, you don't have to. You can actually include it with the gospel booklets, but gospel booklets are on sale right now in the Wretched store as low as 99 cents per booklet. Now through the 25th. And you'll want to order by the 25th, so you'll have them in time for the Devil's Day. That's Halloween. Get them before they're gone at wretched.org. So there you are on your Googler machine trying to find a restaurant. What do you look for? Ratings and reviews. If it gets lots of stars, positive reviews, chances are pretty good you're going to go there. Question, would you be inclined to go to a restaurant that had a 98% approval rating and rave reviews? I suspect you would. MetaShare, Affordable Biblical Health Sharing, has a 98% approval rating. 400,000 members strong, sharing one another's health care bills, saving billions of dollars over the years, saving families on average $500 a month. And 98% of the members of MediShare give it a hearty thumbs up. I encourage you to call them and see if MediShare is right for you and your family. 1-844-34-BIBLE. 1-844-34-BIBLE for MediShare. Books of the Bible Amos was a shepherd called to prophesy during a time of prosperity in Israel and Judah. But this prosperity was accompanied by idolatry, extravagance, and corruption. When you consider the society you live in, Amos declares that God judges societies by His standard of righteousness. He hates all corruption and injustice. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. And you thought hermeneutics weren't important. This is Wretched Radio, the study of biblical interpretive principles. We've seen a slew of them throughout the ages. A spiritual approach, an allegorical approach, an anagogical approach. And, rightly, 
a grammatical historical approach to interpreting the Bible. Uh, that is the method that we adhere to here at Wretched. Grammatical, historical. We understand the grammar. We understand genres. We understand the semantic ranges of words need to be interpreted by context, context, context. We also understand the history. But what history do we understand? When it comes to reading the Bible, what history should we look at to inform our interpretation of a, of a section of Scripture? Might I suggest to you this distinction needs to be really clearly made for a number of reasons. Number one, if we let the history surrounding the text, so it's when Mark wrote his gospel, what was going on at the time? We understand the history but we don't let the history sit in the front seat of the interpretive process. We let the grammar and the intention of the original author drive, dictate our understanding of the contents that he wrote. History just informs it. So it sits in the backseat, preferably it gets put into the trunk, but it can't drive your interpretive process. This is what has happened to virtually every liberal Protestant group. They let history, they drive their interpretation, they diminished grammar, and certainly they got rid of the supernatural. But there's a second reason we need to understand history when it comes to the interpretive process. We need to understand history and its role in instructing us post-biblical canon closing. In other words, how do you and I understand the last 2,000 years of history? Can we see God's hand in it? Well, you have to, because God's orchestrating everything. And so on the one hand, we do take a look at history, and we see God's moving and his working and his progress of fulfilling his promise that he's going to build his church. And he's never ceased with that. It just keeps marching and marching and growing and going. But... We want to be careful that we don't let history from the last 2,000 years inform our theology, just like at the time of the original authors. We want to be careful how we use history. we got to be even more careful when it comes to post-biblical history in informing our interpretive process. Case in point, please don't get offended, my supersessionist friend. We're just going to take a little tour through the history of supersessionism, the theology that says the church has superseded slash replaced Israel. We recognize there are varying shades of that. We, we respect that. But I think as we take a look at how supersessionism, when supersessionism started, what were the events that led the early church to start to think Israel totally done? It's now the church. I would suggest to you, they put too much emphasis on the daily news. They were taking a look at events in time. We'd call it history. They would say current events. And they went, whoa, whoa, this, this has big implications. We see what's going on with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. Oh, this must have some theological implications. God is doing these things, thereby telling us he's done with Israel. And so it is, as you take a look at the history of supersessionism, replacement theology. Again, you're my brother, you're my sister. 
we let's we can we we can do this right. The two destructions of Jerusalem, eighty seventy, the temple destroyed by the Romans. What was happening? Jewish rebellion. Hey, that could be a lesson for today. Nevertheless, there was also one thirty two and one thirty five. Uh, the Jews were scattered abroad. They, they they cleaned out Jerusalem. What happened? The early church looked at that and said, hmm, can we conclude God must be done with Israel? And that's exactly what they did. And so the view that the church would now be the recipient of all of the Old Testament promises toward Israel, not applying to national or ethnic Israel, but applying to the church, that was held by Justin and Origen. There was also a growing of Gentile inclusion into the church. Remember, it's so funny. Well, Christianity is just a white man's religion. Well, actually, no, it's a Middle Eastern <laughs> religion. And it actually started mostly with Jewish people. Remember, it, it emanated from Israel. Paul, where did he go first? He, he followed the pattern of Jesus. He'd go to the synagogue. Who are those people? Jewish people. So there were a lot of Jewish converts in the first century. But as we move into the second century, the third century, guess what? The Gentile population is increasing. And so the early church looked at that and said, hmm, because Jewish Christians had offered little in the way of support for the two revolts, it caused considerable resentment among Jewish nationalists, which resulted in fewer Jewish converts. Furthermore, after the Jews were banished from Jerusalem, Gentiles assumed the leadership roles in the Jerusalem church. Marcus was the first Gentile bishop in 135. Did you know that? Not only did the Gentiles take control of the Jerusalem church, there was considerable Gentile influence on the church from places like Antioch and Rome and Alexandria. Furthermore, the advent of the allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament why? Well, they were believing that God was, was now done with Israel. And so allegorical, it was the interpretive process that was used uh, greatly, especially throughout the Middle Ages. But even in the early church, and personally, I, I, I think you need some form of allegorical interpretive process uh, to help you jump over the hurdle of the Old Testament promises to national and ethnic Israel. That, that's where I see the interesting aspect of this conversation. If you and I just sit at the top debating verses about eschatology, we're probably not going to find much agreement. We might, might persuade somebody, but I think the real issue is how do we read the Bible? How do you read the Old Testament promises to Israel? All right, for instance, hold on, I got my Bible over here was just reading Psalm 105 and verse 10, Rexella. And then I thought, again, what, what do we do with this? 105 verse 10 saith, uh, this covenant which he made with Abraham. Sorry, that's verse 9. This is, wait, no, let's go to verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever. Okay, hold it. What covenant are we talking about here? The covenant with Abraham. He holds it forever. He's going to keep his promise. To whom? Again, you, you have to change your interpretive process to somehow make that say, except that Israel, this promise to Abraham, 
it, it's it's going to be replaced by something called the church. That's where I think the debate should really, if we're going to have it, that should be it. Back to the verse. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which, which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel, an everlasting covenant. But now you can scratch that out and say the church. Or you have to get there some other way than just reading those literal promises to a literal group of people in a literal place and make it. Now, I know you do it. And, and believe, I see it. I get it. I would simply ask, is, is that a consistent hermeneutic? Is that the plain and the main reading of the text? Uh, some sort of spiritualization or allegorization is almost needed to make that case sufficiently. Here's the allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. Used to support supersessionism, Genesis 25, regarding the birth of Esau and Jacob. Jacob. Here it was foretold that Esau, the older, would serve the younger Jacob. Tertullian, early church father, not reliable. Tertullian taught this passage ultimately meant Judaism, the older, would serve the church, the younger. Is that the way that we are supposed to be reading those historical narratives? That's an allegorical approach. That there's a, yes, it's this on the surface, but there's a deeper meaning it represents. Now, that allegorical interpretive process now, that was assumed for a long, long time. If I'm not mistaken, there were two schools, Antiochian and Alexandrian, that practiced slightly different forms of an allegorical model. Nevertheless, the early church adopted that. What do we do with Israel? What do we even do with eschatology? Might I suggest, if you and I are going to have loving, respectful debates on this subject, let's go beyond the... I'm going to say it without a hat tip to Andy Stanley, the clobber verses, and let's get down to the issue of hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible. This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched News Break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Now we start off with concerning developments overseas. Human rights experts are speaking out against the Turkish government's discrimination and mistreatment of religious minorities, especially Christians. The reports are indicating that dozens of foreign Christian workers and missionaries have been expelled from the country or banned from re-entry. Experts say this constitutes an active attempt to suppress Christian faith in Turkey. Yeah, I'd say so. The Christian population has already declined in the country dramatically from 20% to just over 0.2% over the past century. Turkish laws technically protect religious freedom. That doesn't always mean that those laws are carried out. The lived reality for Christians is very different, according to human rights experts. The European Court of Human Rights will be reviewing several cases brought by Christian workers who faced expulsion and entry bans. And so that they're able to hold Turkey accountable and bring some justice for religious minorities. Well, at a bit of lighter news, the fast food chicken wars, they continue to heat up. The numbers are in. Chick-fil-A remains the undisputed king of chicken with over 45% of the market share. Popeyes is now overtaking KFC for the number two spot, but they are shooting for the number one spot, saying they're just getting started. They will become the undisputed chicken kings. 
but it's going to be tough to beat Chick-fil-A. I mean, they have almost half of the market share and they're doing that while being closed on Sundays. Well, the pro-abortion stance of some politicians, ridiculous. Vice President Harris recently claimed that restricting abortion access is immoral. Don't know that she actually understands that immoral? Well, that's murdering your unborn baby for no reason whatsoever. That's what's immoral. Actually trying to save the life of an unborn baby is the opposite of immoral. Life is undoubtedly very different in the liberal fantasy land. Well, we shift gears. Over 700 Israelis and 400 Palestinians have been killed in the outbreak of conflict between Israel and the Hamas militant group. Hamas initiated a surprise attack on Israel by land, air, and sea, which prompted retaliation from the Israeli military. Meanwhile, officials at the UN decided to tweet, hey, trans lesbians are real lesbians. See where their priorities are at, but with Iranian ties and a stated goal of destroying Israel, there are concerns the conflict could expand further into the region. There are diplomatic efforts underway to attempt to help the escalate, but the devastation so far has been horrific. And we need to be praying diligently for our brothers and sisters in Israel. And that's been today's Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Titles of Christ. In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called our Passover. During the first Passover, God spared those whose doors were covered with the blood of a lamb. When we trust in Christ, we are covered by his blood so that we are spared from God's wrath. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. This is Wretched Radio. Uh, Those of you who are uh, bibliophiles, you're going to love this, I hope, fair exploration of supersessionism. Uh, This is the theology that states the church has superseded. It has replaced Israel. Please note, there are varying shades of supersessionists. I'm not aware of any teaching inside of that theological spectrum that comes close to heresy. This, 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 is, this is an in-house skirmish, and there should be no fouls. There should be no reason for a flag to be thrown. And so I deliver this, I hope respectfully. But my position is that the church hasn't replaced Israel. I just can't get over Romans 11. Now, now with the hermeneutic that is left intact. Consider Paul talking about the Jewish people. Back in Romans chapter 9, my heart breaks for these people. That alone raises a question. Why did Paul's heart break, especially for the Jewish people? Why? If they were just mere non-church people that, that have been replaced, they would be no different than Syria or Ethiopia. But he cared profoundly. He actually stated I'd rather lose my salvation and go to hell than to see Israel perish. Whoa, that alone, I think, is a pretty strong argument. There must be a reason that Paul had such a fond affection for Israel. And you could say, in fairness, you could say, well, because he was a Jew. That's true. But remember, he was also the apostle to the Gentiles. He'd always go to the Jewish people in the synagogue first. If it worked out swell, if it didn't, outside he went to the Gentiles. And we know that he loved those people. 
and he warred against the distinction between Jew and Gentile that we are in Christ, not losing the distinctions. We know that, don't we? By the way, some people would say, well, Galatians 3, there's no Jew, no Gentile. See? No, so no national Israel anymore. No Jew, no Gentile, just Christians. Well, hold on. It also says no male and female. And yet we do know, at least those of us who haven't lost our minds, that there's a difference between a pink and a blue. And so you can have unity. You can have a comparison and yet still have distinctions remaining. But then Paul gets really, really emphatic about Israel. He makes it clear that God isn't done with. I don't know how you get around this. I say then, have the Jewish people stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. That that seems to be done right there. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now listen to the way he's talking about the Gentiles, Jews. Clearly, there's still a distinction there. He isn't talking about believers, unbelievers. He's talking about Goyim and the Jewish people. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Romans 11, I think even the supersessionists look at it and go, yeah, there's some sort of plan for Israel. So if nothing else, in all of this geeky discussion now about Bible verses that support or don't support supersessionism, please note, can we agree that we really should be paying attention to what's going on over there? That the Islamic world, if indeed it marshals itself in unity to fight against Israel, that that's a big deal. Uh, that there's 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 some plan for these people, and we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to it and ho-hum it. So what are the Bible verses that supersessionists appeal to? Glad you asked. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You can hear this, right? Abolishing in his flesh, Jesus, the hostility, which is the law, so that in himself he might make the two one person, in this way establishing peace. Huh. It sounds like there's no longer Jewish people anymore. How's about that Galatians 3? Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So what do we, how do we respond to that? Well, let me take you to Romans chapter 11 again. Say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Romans 11, 11. Did they stumble or, or fall beyond saving? No, certainly not. Romans eleven twenty four. For if you are cut off, what is by nature a wild olive tree and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And that's future Israel. Romans 11, Paul treats the church in Israel two distinct groups. Reads 1 Samuel 12, 22, Psalm 89, God's promise of fidelity to ethnic Israel. Now, spiritual unity doesn't necessarily mean ethnic functional distinctions can't exist between the groups. Now, some people would say, well, what about First um, Peter 2, 9? You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all labels for Israel, a people of God's own possession. Clearly, he's done with them, right? Hold on, Romans 9, 23. 
He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, namely as those he called, not only from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. In Hosea, this is a quote in Romans 9, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. So the Bible, Hosea, makes it clear. There's going to come a time when the Gentiles are going to be allowed to have the label for God's chosen people. That was prophesied. Funny how those prophecies just keep getting fulfilled. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. The Old Testament predicted that Gentiles would assume the language used to describe Israel. But that is not the same as the Gentiles assuming Israel's ethnic identity. Isaiah 29, 24. On that day, Israel will be the third party to Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of armies has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the works of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So please note, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, one in a sense, but distinct, clearly distinct in another. Now, supersessionists argue that because Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham, because he is the promises to the believing, believing ethnic seed of Abraham through Jacob, no longer relevant. Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say to seeds, not to many, but rather in referring to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Boom, end of story. So it's all fulfilled. However, the seed of Abraham isn't an either-or concept. There are multiple ways the seed of Abraham is used throughout Scripture, and none cancel out the meaning of others. Uh, furthermore, I, I think it's fair to say that there are at least three components of the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, you did have seed, that, that there would be one who would reign, that would crush the head of the serpent. But you also see a land and a nation. Now, there are people who would say, well, it, Jesus fulfilled that too. So all of the old covenant promises that appear to be aimed at Israel were actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Again, I would say to you, um, that isn't the way the original audience would have understood it. Now, when his covenant to Abraham, Psalm 105, verses, what was it, 9 through 12, will last for a thousand generations, wasn't it was intended to be poetic language forever to summarize. Supersessionists, my friends, you must establish your case by proving biblical passages and lots of them that explicitly predict the future restoration of national ethnic Israel no longer mean what they meant when they were first written. Supersessionists, I believe, can establish the case that there's rational explanations to supersessionism's biblical arguments. Now, I know you've got them too. And, and that's why this is an intramural debate. I, I get it. Believe me, supersessionists, they're not stupid people. But supersessionism must provide answers to these questions. One, if God is both true and cannot lie, how is it that he can make multiple eternal and unconditional promises and covenants to a specifically identified group of people, the ethnic nation of believing Israel, and not fulfill them in relation 
to that one specifically identified group. Two, church and Israel are now one and the same. Why do the tribes of the Son of Israel still exist in such passages as Revelation 7? And how are believing Gentiles incorporated into these tribes? On what basis are Gentiles designated to one tribe and not to another? Three, what Bible passage explicitly eliminates the possibility that the promises and covenants made to the literal ethnic Israel of believing Israel can yet be futuristically fulfilled in the same sense of when those promises, those covenants, were first made, and in the manner of how they were first understood. Am I done beating the supersessionist horse? So let's close with some unity. We care about Israel. All of us. This is Wretched Radio. So, you aren't convinced of the importance of training godly men to rightly divide the word of truth in churches internationally? Well then, we'll let Paul Washer convince you. You have to support men who are elder qualified proclaimers of the word. When we support a man coming out of TMAI, we know not only that he is properly trained, but we know that he will still be supervised. Would you please join TMAI, the Master's Academy International, in advancing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through expository preaching in local churches around the globe. It's a magnificent ministry, and it's so important. Please consider partnering with TMAI at wretched.org slash pastor, wretched.org slash pastor. Thank you for supporting indigenous pastors around the world. Thanks for listening to Wretched Radio today. And we also thank you, our friends who have ventured through the aisles, the digital aisles of Wretched.org. You're not just buying a book or a video. You're actually investing in truth, wisdom, and the kingdom of God. But listen, why stop at the checkout? How about joining us as an ongoing monthly gospel partner? Because it's a way to go deeper and to become part of something more than just a simple store transaction. It's about standing firm in the faith, reaching millions of people all over the world. But we need your help to do that. The gospel isn't something we just consume. It's something that we share and we need your help sharing it together. There's no sales pitch here. This is just an honest invitation to become a part of a mission that's changing lives all over the world. All of the details on how you do just that is at wretched.org slash donate. Wretched, amazing grace, amazing gospel. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa and the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? 
Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Hermeneutics. A vital part of biblical hermeneutics is an understanding of genre. One genre we find in scripture is narrative. Narratives tell us of real events with real people in real places at a real time. Not everything we read in narratives is condoned by God, but everything we read is part of God working out His plan for the world. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. When is there enough smoke to yell a fire? This is Wretched Radio. A number of conservative evangelicals now singing off of the same song sheet. The chorus, Andy Stanley, is officially a wolf, a false teacher. My question is, when should we have been singing that song? Did we wait? too long? Are there some people who actually jumped the gun? If you go to the YouTube machine and you search for Andy Stanley false teacher, it it goes back years. You'll find videos of people saying, Houston, or better yet, Atlanta, we have a problem. Now, most people in evangelical Christianity are of one mind. Clearly, the dude is off of the rails. But I would posit that Errant views on sexuality, gender, and marriage, that, that's, that's not when the individual got off the rails. It, it, it's, it's earlier down the track when they got off of the rails of orthodoxy and now sexuality is merely an expression of their false teaching. When did it begin for Andy? I'm not exactly sure, but I do remember back in 2011, a number of us who weren't all that familiar with Andy Stanley heard that he invited Michelle Obama to speak at his church. She is a radical pro-abort. Andy justified it by saying she's just speaking on fitness, perhaps. But what is the mindset that says, hey, It's worth inviting somebody who wants to intentionally take the life of innocent human beings and have the government, uh, in other words, you, pay for them to come and speak on something as, frankly, benign as fitness. Like, that's the church's role, to speak on physical fitness and how many calories you should consume and how much exercise you can get. I, I know Joel Osteen preached an entire sermon on that. Birds of a feather, apparently. But that just isn't the business of the church. We're to be expositing the word. And that is why when we would listen to Andy Stanley's sermons, they were so void of biblical teaching. Is that enough smoke for us to yell fire? If a man who's in a pulpit or sits at a music stand, if a man who is called to preach the Bible, never really preaches the Bible, but simply uses scripture for life hacks of the sort you can get on YouTube, uh, shouldn't that cause us to at the very least say, danger, Will Robinson, caution. Uh, 
there we we're we're seeing the iceberg, but oh, underneath there there's there's got to be something going on there. And at the very least, to say caution, maybe not yet to say wolf or false teacher, as some are claiming Andy now is, but to say, look, this this is this is sub-Christian. This is not biblical enough to warrant your consideration, your attention, your devotion, and certainly your funding. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where all of our troubles began. Quoth, quoth Andy Stanley, who then proceeded to tell us we need to unhitch the Old Testament. That, that's far worse than what he's revealing regarding his attitudes about sexuality, gender, and marriage. That's, that's, look, I know these are big contemporary issues. They're sin issues. It's, it's, it's the hot subject right now. But a subpar view of the Bible that we should unhitch the Old Testament, that, 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 that's when a flag should have been thrown. That, that's when we should have been saying, Mark, avoid. Now, Here's the challenge with Andy and others uh, that that follow in his footstep. And there are a lot of evangelicals that are indeed trying to emulate Andy, finding what they call a middle ground, which is nothing but Protestant liberalism repackaged to be palatable to conservative biblical evangelicals. These, These individuals, they love this guy. And, 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 and they're following him. And maybe, just maybe, we should create a category so that people uh, don't have to wait until he expresses himself wrongly on gender issues. What, what's worse, to be off on sexuality and marriage or to be off on the Bible? You say, we're off on the Bible regarding sexuality and marriage. I know that, but what we're talking about on this hand is the absolute lack of belief in the sufficiency and the authority of the plenary-inspired scriptures, that all scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. What scripture was Paul talking about? Mostly Old Testament scriptures, all of it profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So when a preacher comes along and says, we don't need that, that that should be enough. You don't want to call him a false teacher? Okay, because he hasn't violated the historical orthodox essentials of biblical Christianity? Okay. But when do we get to say, you got to stay away from this fellow? Please, if you are going to North Point Church, what, what, what needs to happen for you to be persuaded that this is a man who isn't feeding your soul truth? A number of years ago, remember this so vividly, you maybe don't remember the name of Greg Boyd, Dr. Greg Boyd. He's a preacher in St. Paul, Minnesota. I like Greg. I Super nice guy, really nice guy, but he was an open theist. And, and I remember this vividly. On, on September 11, he literally said, in the studio that I was sitting in, God didn't know this was going to happen. <laughs> what? Nothing. 
crickets from the evangelical community. Sure, he's espousing open theism. Sure, well, you know, I'm sure you know he believes in Jesus, even though he clearly doesn't believe in God's omniscience, which would be a theological strike, to be certain. It was just a pass. And then he continued to preach more and more things that should have caused evangelicals to go, got to mark that guy and avoid him. Let people know you gotta, you've got to run from this fellow. Look, we, we can't specifically say, I think with Greg, you could because of open theism, with all due respect to the Evangelical Theological Society, who didn't say that open theism of the sort of Clark Pinnock and Greg Boyd was heresy. When you change the nature of God from being omni-everything, uh, that, that to me is an essential. But the evangelical community yawned until one day that very same Greg Boyd was sitting in another studio with a talk show host. I'm not going to mention the fellow's name, who heard an inkling that maybe the fellow is pro-choice. So that host pursued it a bit. And Pastor Boyd came out and said that he's okay with abortion up to the third trimester. Ding, 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 jackpot. Suddenly, about half of his church left. They got that. They got that. And I understand it. Those issues, they seem so clear to us. But I would posit that being off biblically is worse than even being off on the life issue. Furthermore, when you're off on the life, marriage, gender, sexuality issues, uh, it's not because you're square on your view of the Bible, the, the clarity of the Bible, that the entire scriptures are inspired by God. This came first, then the bad social positions. The, the first problem with Andy, with Greg Boyd, is their view of the Bible. and. If you are still saying, well, that's not enough to call him a false teacher, so be it. But might I suggest to you, don't we have enough evidence now, which frankly, we've had for years. Don't we have enough evidence now to say, this is somebody that we need to mark and avoid. You don't want to mark him as a false teacher. That's your call. But I do believe the effect should be the same. A man who wants the Old Testament, who invites pro-aborts into his church, who says all of our trouble began when we taught kids because the Bible tells me so. I know Jesus loves me. By the way, how else would we know that? <laughs> Apologizing to unbelievers for Christians who have quoted the Bible. You see, Andy's problem all along has not been about sexual issues. Hasn't been about the life issue. And by the way, does anybody know where Andy stands on that? Has he made any public statements? I've never heard one. Would love it if you'd send it to ideatwretched.org. I have a suspicion you might be lacking a little bit of clarity on that subject from the pastoral king of obfuscation. Andy's problem is bibliology. It's an insufficient low view. And I'm dear North Pointer. Find yourself a church that really believes in the authority of the Bible, because Andy doesn't. And until tomorrow, go serve your king. <laughs>